This is Transmission 6 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. Keep Earth Weird with Quinn Norton. So, um, we recorded this chat with Quinn, Shiva and I, um, just before Christmas. And as we say on the internet, because of reasons, it's just going up now at the very end of February. So... You know, I've just listened to it again, obviously, and there's really nothing that, um, that dates the podcast. It's perfectly fine. Um, last I checked, the only thing is the Liberals who are running Australia, which is where I live, aren't actually, I don't think, anyway, dredging the Great Barrier Reef. We mentioned that briefly. But otherwise, it's a great chat, and Quinn says awesome things like, Europe's speciality is killing itself, and we might get into the highly contentious subject of cupcakes at the very end, if you tune around for that. Tune in for that at the end. Um, learn about cool things like thermohaline cycle shutdown. That's pretty bleak. What else? Cyanobacteria, cultural shifts slow travel, and a whole bunch of stuff talking about the unfolding of the apocalypse, basically. So, I uh, hope you enjoy it. It starts right after this little musical interlude. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, churn world, serves its own needs, dummy serve your own needs, feed it up and knock speed, grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high wire in a fire, rivers in a seven games, in a government for hire, in a combat. Thanks, Quinn, for coming on to the show, because it's a show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And, and this is counting as your monthly talk, right? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm planning to do a makeup talk in January, since I couldn't really book anything for the last two weeks of December, because the last two weeks of December. Uh, America kind of goes into non-functional mode between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Uh, so that was really probably never going to happen unless I was in another country. <laughs> yes, fair enough. I think it's much the same here. I've just moved house, so I'm like, whatever, out of time. Setting things up. What time is it there? It is, um, it, well, it was 1 o'clock. It's like 1.08 p.m. Okay. So yes, it's good. All is well. Um, so, sorry, go on. Go on. So what I wanted to pick your brains about is I, I said something very offhand to um, Asha like a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then you brought, the, you brought the science and I wanted to like expand on that because it happens to be exactly what I've been thinking about and I'm going to cheat and use you as a resource. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of things does climate change actually cause? Uh, like like what, what the next... So have you read the peripheral? I have not. Um now, my background on this, I should say that my background on this formally is uh, is basically 20 years old. I did um, some uh, marine science work uh, many, many, many years ago, spent a lot of time pulling water tests. It, it's funny to be in a geek community or even a futurist community. There is a kind of lionization of scientists that doesn't really, like, for me, my idea of doing science isn't quite as 
alchemical as as most of the geeks I'm around think it is. It's much more like taking one fucking water sample after another all day long. <laughs> um, it's uh, so much of it is like measure, 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 and it gets kind of glorified in the in the retelling and the fictionalizing of it. Um, but and I'm, I, let me just say, I appreciate my time in science. It was really, really informative, and I kind of wish I was still there sometimes. But uh, but the way people kind of think of it is not really how it works. <laughs> um, was that um, what were you doing, testing pollution or something? I was doing uh, I was doing coastal marine surveys, and mostly what I was doing I was also kind of a low man on totem poles, so uh, I was occasionally out on a research vessel. Mostly I was uh, on shore, taking water samples from dip different depths and measuring temperature, salinity, things like that. Occasionally we were looking at um, organisms that existed at different depths, but mostly we were looking at how salinity changed at different depths. How temperature was changing at different de depths um, along a coastal profile. It it doesn't sound like very glorious work, but it actually starts to. I think actually marine science is a great place to start seeing how all of these systems interrelate, uh, because you don't think of like a bunch of cold water coming in on the coast doing much, but in fact usually it means there's an upwelling. Uh, which is a coastal phenomenon, and that upwelling can lead to a bunch of extra nutrients coming into the water. That can lead to algal blooms, which can lead to higher levels of toxins inside of local marine life, which can then in turn lead to people having a really hard time eating the local catch, which we're living with right now in San Francisco, where I am at the moment. Uh, the Dungeness crab is now toxic to humans, and there's a bunch of, um, a bunch of people who are essentially losing their jobs because of uh, warming in the water at that point. So you, get, you really start to get a sense about how all of these things are really connected. Uh, I'm really glad that marine science was kind of my introduction to a lot of the stuff around climate science. I don't really like to talk about climate change or global warming per se. These days, I much, much prefer the frame of planetary boundaries because it's not just... It's literally what I'm writing down right now. Mm -hmm. Boundaries. So yeah, go. Sorry. So, so planetary boundaries is a way of discussing the things that, the the kind of variables that make life as we know it possible, and it's not just warming and sea level rise. It's things like how much nitrogen can we really dump into the water? What's how much do we need phosphorus? How much is the phosphorus getting out of place? What's that going to do? Um, it's questions about biodiversity, ozone layer. All these different things, like there's a lot of factors in play that often kind of like get shoved into climate change. But in fact, if you want to talk about biodiversity in the nitrogen cycle, that's only tangentially connected to anything that you could call climate change, except in the most general sense of climate. Um, so we overfocus, for, for my money, we overfocus on CO2 and underfocus on biodiversity, for instance. Um, now, that's not to say CO2 isn't a big problem. I mean, there's plenty of people that way under focus on CO2, but compared to the global focus on loss of habitat and biodiversity, I mean, we're, we're playing Russian roulette when it comes to the habitat question as well. Um, 
because essentially, you know, we don't know at what point we're going to take out a cornerstone species. People kind of got this idea during the the, um, colony collapse disorder with bees that, oh, wait, if we don't have bees, there's a whole bunch of food we also don't have. And I think that was most people's introduction to the idea of cornerstone species. Uh, The fact that you lose one of those. And the thing is, you don't entirely know which species those are. (laughs) You find out after the fact, which is not great. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the reading I've done when looking at the de-extinction extinction stuff is just the trail of species we've left behind us that were doing that wrong. Human history basically seems to be us wiping out uh, keystone after keystone species. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we can overgeneralize on that. Uh, we, I mean, any successful species to some degree is going to be wiping out all the other keystone species. And I like to point out that like we're bad as far as um, an organism's effect on the uh, on the environment on the climate, but we are nothing compared to cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria shat out. Uh, something that set the world on fire, and it's essentially been burning down ever since. Like, it set out one of the more corrosive gases that you could, um, and that was oxygen. And in doing something that destroyed the vast majority of things that were alive on the planet, it also made multicellular life possible. So, oh no and yay. So that's who we should go after, right? That's who. That's the key criminal, then. Cyanobacteria. Yeah, cyanobacteria is really at fault for all of this. So don't kill Hitler. Stop cy- cyanobacteria. Yeah, yeah. You want to stop the stromatolites? <laughs> okay, done. 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 How many hundreds of millions of years ago was that? <laughs> that was uh, probably uh, well. That was Precambrian explosion. So that was over. That was like, um, probably I want to say like 2.7. I mean, somebody on the internet will undoubtedly correct me because I'm kind of trying to have to remember that. 2.7 is the last common ancestor between humans and Archaea. So it was probably a little, probably 3 billion years ago um, was about the time cyanobacteria started filling the world with oxygen, which shouldn't be here. It's one of the reasons why on exoplanets, they look for the signature of oxygen as a possible factor for life because... It absolutely shouldn't be on a rocky planet like this. Well, that's the old um, James Lovelock Gaia hypothesis, right? Um, Looking for chemical imbalances. No, I mean, that's actually one of the things that they're doing. You know, they're regularly looking at um, elemental signatures off of, or they're trying with the Kepler um, telescope to see, to see the um, elemental signatures and see if they make sense with the rest of the elemental signatures they're finding in in the area and I'm getting way beyond what I've done any extensive reading on here on exoplanets um, I'm mostly like I get most of my exoplanet information from YouTube <laughs> um, and you know occasional Neil deGrasse Tyson podcasts <laughs> but um, but I do understand a little bit about um, uh, the using elemental signatures to try and understand that and that there really is, like, if you looked at, if you were looking at the transits and other things of our solar system from a ways away, you could tell that Earth was weird, that it shouldn't look like it does. And, and our job is to keep it weird. <laughs> keep Earth weird. Yes. <laughs> and not sterile. 
Earth, keep Earth weird and infected. That's our job. All right, cool. Wow. So, Jesus, we've already drifted completely off topic. That's fine. Um, so where does Mars fit in? Let's let's go to Mars and then rewind our way back. Does does Mars need cyanobacteria then? Is that what you're saying? Uh, you know, I, I feel like Mars is really exciting, but if people think we're going to move to Mars anytime soon, they're adorable. I mean, if we if we really do want to get rid of all the capitalists that we don't like these days because they're getting all the resources, sending them Mars sounds great. Like, everything on Mars will kill you. Like, you basically just have to live in a bubble. You take a spaceship there, and essentially you build a spaceship on the ground and you live there. Like, it is so not going to happen. <laughs> um, if you think fixing Earth is going to be hard, it is nothing compared to trying to terraform Mars. Um, for how damaged the Earth is, for everything you can point at we've done wrong, we've screwed up about this planet, it is, it is just amazingly easier and better to live on than any other planet we've seen. Like, even... The easy cases, like the most um, optimistic cases of any of the exoplanets we've seen, the most optimistic idea there is still vastly, vastly harder beyond anything in our current technology to actually build a human colony on there that isn't essentially a spaceship on the ground in which you are losing all of your bone mass in a, in a few years anyway. Gravity alone drives you crazy there, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, you know, we aren't well adapted for low gravity. I mean, the thing is, like, we're seeing the damage that happens to astronauts, but those are the people who are selected to be most physiologically capable of going into space. Let me tell you why Quinn never gets to be an astronaut. Like many people on this planet, the top valve of my stomach does not close reliably. If you get heartburn on any kind of a regular basis, I want you to imagine what every meal is going to be like in space. Just to begin with. It's going to be like having your lunch float into your nose is what it's going to be like. Like, there's so many physical tolerances that you have to go through to be an astronaut that people don't really understand how ill-equipped the vast majority of our 7.5 billion people are for leaving this planet. Even if you could like somehow magically teleport to Mars, you're, it's, it's not enough gravity to keep most people's bodies together the way they need them to. Other planets are very hard. We should probably fix this one. But if we can ship assholes to Mars, I'm totally fine with that. We can leave out the part about the stomach and just like have them beam it back to us over intergalactic Skype. That'll be funny. <laughs> intergalactic Skype, yes, definitely. Um, I mean, because there was that thing even recently that the um, solar solar flares are like stripping the Martian atmosphere. Anyone? Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's why you need a magnetic magnetosphere. Like, one of the main things that protects us is our double spinning core. And when people are like, "Well, how do we restart the magnetosphere on Mars?" I'm like, "You have fun with that. I'm gonna stay on Earth." <laughs> it's pretty epic terraforming. <laughs> yeah, we, it might actually be easier in the long run to terraform Venus. This is, I like the Cloud City idea for that. Yeah, the Cloud City idea is good. And potentially, if we find some process for removing atmospheric CO2 on Earth, we could just do a lot of that. Like, if you've got anything that uh, opportunistically grabs CO2 out of the air, we could just, like, 
throw a bunch of those on Venus and and wait a few thousand years. <laughs> we might have an easier time with that. And Venus still has an atmosphere. A crushing, crushing atmosphere. Ultimately, though, if what we're worried about is getting out of here before the... We've probably got a billion years before the sun is burning the atmosphere off of our planet. Uh, is going, you know, intergalactic, and that's or not intergalactic. Sorry, um, intergalactic with Skype um, is going uh, is getting out of the solar system, and again, very hard. We're not gonna do it. <laughs> it's not gonna be us. You that? You keep dropping out. Oh, I I I had a network hiccup. Okay, cool. Uh, we've got to, you know, you're obviously on Earth. This isn't taking place over intergalactic Skype, right? <laughs> yeah. Our latency is bad, but it's not that bad. So I think you were originally wanting to ask me about, like, how do you survive the coming problems with climate change? Was that the... Were you, so you were spinning this really good narrative, yeah, to Asha. And I, I just sat there and went, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I should stop making hyperbolic statements about mass death. I should talk to Quinn. That's what... That's what so one of the things to understand about sea level rise is that uh, it's slow. And normally, and there's some level of erosion in sea level rise experienced locally all over the world, and there always has been, if nothing else. Like every time a river shifts, the local area, rivers deposit sand that creates beaches that prevents erosion of the mainland area. Take a river away, say it's shifted course, that means that land is going to essentially um, experience the effects of something like sea level rise. So how do people cope with that over time? They move back from the sea. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight. It's not a tsunami one day. Um, houses get abandoned, people build their houses further back, and, and so on and so forth. Now, that starts to get really hard when you look at a country like Bangladesh. And they're already incredibly tense. They're already incredibly full of people. They're going to move back from the sea. And moving back from the sea doesn't look like everybody runs away from the shore one time. Um, you know, back in the day when I was, uh, when I was, I was particularly interested in physical oceanography when I was doing the marine science stuff. Um, everybody else wanted to do marine bio. I was like, living things are too living. I'm just going to talk about waves, right? But um, one of the things in talking to the marine bio people, even early on, that we thought that we would see. And I think this is, this is where climate change, as we know, it really starts to intersect with our current political crises. Um, one of the things that we believe that we would see is a northern migration, in the, in the northern hemisphere, northern migration, in the southern hemisphere, southern migration, of organisms, of the range of, of the normal range of organisms. As the climate became less hospitable towards the equator, uh, animals, plants, everything would move north. And now, 25 years later, we're watching that happen. And we're watching that happen with a bunch of different species. Uh, and um, I think importantly, one of those species, there's no reason to, to look at the current refugee migration and think that this isn't related to my mind. Like, we're in the great northern migration. Um, and most of those people who are currently at the forefront of the Great Northern Migration of organisms, because they are just another organism, um, are starting to move range northerly exactly the same way we were modeling sea turtles doing it. 
So the problem with Bangladesh isn't that one day half of the population of Bangladesh is going to drown. They're not going to be living knees up into water. It's that they're going to move north. And as they move north, they're going to push the people who are north of them more north. And then some of them are going to take off for northerly regions and so on and so forth. Uh, So right now we're acting like any organism, like any densely packed organism does when one parts of its part of it starts to move north because its climate has been disrupted. I mean, one of the things that kind of just absolutely kills me about the way human beings talk about um, the ecology of animals on the planet is not realizing that we are animals in an ecology. And we are going to respond to ecological problems exactly the same way the other animals do, by changing ranges, by changing behaviors, and trying to survive. I mean... Like most animals, we're mostly trying to survive and have sex. Yes. <laughs> so. Those are the prime directives. Yes. So a lot of um, a lot of the first things I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing the first parts of what the Anthropocene does to the anthro part of it, which is it starts moving the species range north. We can already see how the Sahara and the Sahal have largely emptied out in the last 6,000 years. There's just nobody there anymore. It's not within the tolerable range for the species. Uh, so it's pretty simple. That widens. You know, um, uh, depending on what rain patterns that I think the science is kind of unsettled. It's like when people say, oh, there's no debate about climate change. I'm like, there's tons of debate about climate change. Exactly. Nobody's quite sure exactly how it's all going to happen. I know that's not what they're talking about, but I just don't want to have that conversation anymore. Like, I've known this for a long time. <laughs> but like, wh- what happens to the rain shadows of um, the equatorial uh, rain effects? Like, we don't know. Um, the nightmare situation. So... Humans have always run for the coast in general, partly because coasts make uh, for gentler weather. But um, so we're definitely going to move north and we definitely need to accommodate people moving north. The less we accommodate them, the more we create an area for conflict. Like we're not going to be able to pretend like uh, northerly regions are going to stay sparsely populated because they're just not. They just can't. Um, they're going to be populated with the caring capacity. This is the thing is I actually kind of believe that, um, just to skip around slightly, that we've, we've cast things as a population problem. But I've, as, as I've spent more time looking at them, the problem is a caring capacity problem. We've, been, we've used technology for thousands of years to turn population problems into caring capacity problems. Very successfully. Change, we, you, don't have a, you don't have a population process a problem if you can totally manage your caring capacity problem. Um, and there's not really a lot of reason we couldn't continue to manage it. We just need to, I think, accept that we're doing that. Now, there are a few nightmare scenarios. Uh, one of the biggest nightmare scenarios is called thermohaline uh, cycles shutdown. Uh, and do you know this one? No, I'm writing this down too. Thermo what? Okay, if you if you really if you really want to be scared of the future, thermal haline cycle shutdown is uh, a condition the world has passed into at least twice that I rem- okay again wish I'd read this before I started doing this but as I remember it t- at least twice probably more times most notably 
during the Great Dying, the Permian-Triassic die-off. And all it means, initially it sounds kind of innocuous, the world currents, oceanic currents, shut down. That doesn't sound like much, but it turns out that those happy little bacteria um, that were going before um, cyanobacteria shut down the world, like a bunch of the little bacteria, the sulfur-based bacteria, start going crazy without the without the um, without the thermohaline cycle, which is a, which is driven, as is suggested by the name, by the heat and salty water and the wind currents and so on and so forth. If that shuts down. The seas start to just die off and become polluted by hydrogen sulfide belching bacteria. They become poisonous. So at that point, all of the organisms, including us, run to the interior. We can't stay on the coast if that happens. That's bad fucking news. We do not want that to happen. That's a big rock from space hits us bad. Not a sterilizing rock, but a big rock, right? Like, it, that, that's very, very, very bad. Um, that's one of the major factors in the great dying. Now, it is one of the reasons why it's being talked about now is that we are pretty sure one of the things that brought that on was extremely high CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Now, there's several mechanisms for this. Nobody can be entirely sure what happened. But if that starts to happen, we need to get damn serious about terraforming this planet. It's still, even, I want to point out, going back to the Mars question, even at the point where the, the oceans shut down and the seas filled with hydrogen sulfide belching bacteria and the uh, center of the planet becomes uninhabitable because it's warm and all the organisms race north, it is still vastly easier to live on Earth than it is on Mars. <laughs> even... But it just doesn't fit the um, billionaire storybook, right? Right, yeah. I mean, even at our, at our kind of worst case scenarios, this is actually still a pretty nice planet. Um, it might have a hard time with seven and a half billion people and whales and other things that we like, uh, but life will do okay. This is a planet where, I mean, we, we like to talk about how long it took for things to bounce back from the Permian-Triassic Great Dying. We're like, oh, it was 10 million years before uh, the forests came back or something. But like, forests came back. <laughs> 10 million years isn't that long in the, in the whole course of history. Like, you can try to knock life off this planet, but this planet is so life-friendly. At, at the worst, it takes a few million years to come back. There... And so that's, that's what this, sorry, go. What was that? Oh, it's because I think that's where the this planetary boundary stuff comes in, right? Like how many you can cross, how big the dying is going to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and there may be, you know, if you look at the graph, some people have done of planetary boundaries. There's like a few that have question marks on them. Like we don't know if we know about the planetary boundaries. Um, I've, I'm having a network problem. I'm going to answer this question because it'll be on the recording. Um, so we mostly just talk about the planetary boundaries that we know about at this point, but there could be quite a few more out there that we are mucking around with and don't even know that we're mucking around with. So I think there's uh, so much really interesting science here. Uh, and so many really interesting historical stories as well. 
Um, and my internet is getting terrible. <laughs> my internet is dropping out right now, so. Oh no, I'm back on. Okay, let me try and actually reconnect real quick. Yeah, cool. You are back. Welcome back to part two of Quinn and the Apocalypse. Keep us weird, yo. Right. <laughs> so, um, the apocalypse is going to take a really... One of the things that's really hard... Let me, go, let me start that again. One of the things that makes this really hard for humans to think about is that this is a slow-moving apocalypse. We, we kind of think about apocalypse as something that, like, happens like a nuclear winter, right? Like, everything blows up and then everything's terrible and it somehow is going to fit inside a two-hour movie or at least like a three-book cycle or something like that. We're currently, if we're in the apocalypse, and it's entirely possible that we're in something that could be called an apocalypse, it's going to be hundreds of years of apocalypse. And even during that time, uh, it won't feel particularly apocalyptic to anyone because whatever they're in is just going to be the local normal. If the Great Northern Migration goes on for the next hundred years, like nobody looks at the Sahara and goes, oh my God, that's a great tragedy. It's part of the end of the world. I'm devastated that the Sahara Desert is there. We're just like, oh, we found some cave paintings. People used to have cattle here. Isn't that weird, right? Like that's what humans dealing with a slow moving apocalypse looks like. And it, what was that? They just found that river, right? They found that river that showed that it was fertile, like, however many hundred years ago. Oh, they, they found a bunch of stuff in um, Sudan. Uh, and, and just looking back at, like, uh, Egyptian history throughout the region, you know, if, even, even if you just go back um, a few thousand years, there's a, a lot of evidence now that there was, like, grazing land where there is now just shifting sands. And to be fair... Uh, to to all of the completely crazy and irrational climate deniers out there. Um, we were definitely on a warming cycle before this all happened. We just essentially hit the gas on it. Um, so, all right, I've, I've run out of gas. What's the next question? <laughs> well, I was just going to make an analogy, which is, um, so the peripheral, right, is basically about all about the slow apocalypse, right? It's just, so you call it the jackpot years, so it's that, that period of un the unfolding of a mass die-off, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we're pretty clearly straight in it. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, and it's like the, um, you know, the boiling frog metaphor. So, so I mean, I, I actually, I like the metaphor of the boiling frog because it turns out it's totally not true. If you put a frog into water and start to warm it up, it gets the hell out of the water. Ha! Huh. That's brilliant. And, um, <laughs> Jump. um, so, um, uh, and it is also true that humans have responded to slow environmental failures in a bunch of different ways in our history. Um, 
sometimes we have really fucked it up and depopulated our homes and so on and so forth. And sometimes we've pulled it together and reinvented culture around sustainable methods. And you can see this from everywhere, from uh, Iceland and the Chatham Islands to the Easter Island. You know, there's Jared Diamond's whole what was going through the mind of the last guy who cut down the last tree on, on Easter Island. But on the other hand, you have somewhere like the Chatham Islands. Um, which I think is this beautiful example that I really, really want to research more as well, where this is essentially a small set of islands some New Zealanders many, many, many moons ago went off to and populated, and they kind of outlawed war and murder effectively. And they did it because their island had a carrying capacity of about, around 2,000, period. So... Uh, they couldn't really afford to lose people, and they couldn't afford, and they had controls on how people had babies too. So they they actually had a pretty strict set of rules in their society to keep them living sustainably uh, at the caring capacity that their land could really do for them. And that, I that that essentially sustainable identity was so baked into them culturally that when people showed up to commit genocide against them, they didn't fight back because you don't kill in that culture. They made the decision, and I think they actually made a really interesting decision there because like, if your identity is around not murdering, not having this violent side to society because you know that's the end of society, then the day someone shows up to make war on you is the day you die one way or another. You either die to your own principles or you die physically. And for many people, those aren't terribly different states. You can see similar things in the history of Iceland where they've adapted to, uh, to changes and done a lot in the culture to kind of make sure that they were fitting in the island that they were on. So you see a lot of excesses. And there's no, there's no particular culture that's better or worse in general about this, but you see places where they made the, the, a decision to keep a balance with the environment they were in and places they didn't. Um, and I think that's really interesting. It certainly tells me that there's no given outcome to the story we're in the middle of. It's, it's, it's a choose-your-own-adventure with a lot of answers. And I think that's both interesting and hopeful. And all of the answers that I've been able to find looking through history, going back to ancient history, where people are dealing with different environmental effects in different cultures, every one of those answers has been at some level, very important level, about cultural shifts. Occasionally, those cultural shifts have been top down, but just as often, they've been bottom up cultural shifts in how people lived and how people chose to live that allowed them to live in their, in, in their biome reasonably. And sometimes, I mean, as silly as being a West Coaster, watching everyone sort their trash is, I also know that it's that kind of ritual uh, eventually turned into a, a set of effective rituals that creates balance in a society with its ecology. Behavior is part of ecology, so figuring out what, what our behavior should be 
And, and it's, I mean, it's really obvious that our political leadership has utterly failed on this question. And in many ways, local leadership has been, local leadership and people's willingness has been so much better than, um, than the top-down stuff. You know, people call it the market meeting that thing, but the market is, is at best responding to something happen, happening culturally. Um, and it's so hard for human beings to both imagine something as big as this planet and something as deep as environmental time. So, I mean, I, there's a lot wrong, but kudos to all the little, you know, monkeys with pretensions of godhood running around trying to figure out if they can sort trash, right? Like, it's a start. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, right now, we manage, essentially, you know, we manage food and we manage nitrogen, um, phosphorus, access to energy, um, and a few other things that are essentially like, if you break down what wealth and, and welfare is, in this on this planet it's a few elements and some energy right like there's ways of recombining carbon nitrogen and phosphorus and a few other things but that's pretty much what wealth is made of um we could manage a lot more people a lot more sustainably on this planet even with some of the environmental damage we have were we doing it intelligently the level of waste and just ill thought out usage land usage is insane um just the level of meat of unnecessary meat consumption right now uh meat raised by human like biomass vertebrate biomass raised by humans is larger than vertebrate biomass out there and most of that not all but most of that vertebrate biomass being raised by humans we don't need. So we should switch to cricket flour? Like, stop, basically? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, we should, you know, there's a lot There's a lot we could be doing in terms of um, sustainably concentrating protein. We could switch to mycoprotein, cricket flour, some soybeans, even a little bit of meat if you really miss it. You know, if, you, if everybody on the planet had a special day once a month where they ate meat, it would be so much neater. Like people would be so much more into meat on the day that they eat meat. And we could free up so much more of our land to actually strengthen the biosphere. Just right there. Just just right in both in terms of energy consumption, land use, biodiversity, nitrogen and phosphorus, a whole bunch of our planetary boundaries right there. So many of them are going into making sure that you can have some kind of shitty ass beef with every meal and fish. Um, the way we fish is insane. And honestly, as bad as the land is, the sea is much worse off. Like, no, no more fish. I, I want to ground the human race. You're grounded for a month. <laughs> and by a month, I mean a long time <laughs> from eating any kind of fish until we can fish in a way that is grown up because <laughs> we're not we're not we're not eating like grown-ups um for me what i've read the limited about the written i've done um the difference between the pre-colonial agriculture in the americas and australia versus 
what's happening now. Like, it was a lot more... They terraformed the country instead of farming, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, we have... Australia could live on kangaroos. No problem. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, our population is so small and our country so big. And um, if you guys brought back... <laughs> right. Yeah, your population of your country is slightly bigger than my hometown. Thank you. <laughs> I know, we're tiny. We're tiny. What's going to be interesting when you talk about um, migration is if... Because we're getting... Like, I'm in Melbourne, right? And we're getting way more tropical-feeling weather. You know? Like, it's constant. It's pretty clear that um, there's changes in the weather. Down here, um, whether, because it's always been the great paranoid fear of an invasion from the north, from Asia, like, it's the white, the white fear. Yeah, yeah, you're going to get invaded by salt, basically. (laughs) That's the thing, right? That's the thing. It's not, it's always been like, Indonesia is going to take whatever, or Japan or China or whatever. And it's, it's salt and wind. Yeah. Yeah. No. You're just gonna... You're literally salting the land. <laughs> that's what that's what Rome did to Carthage so that it could never be rebuilt. That's what you're doing to your home right now. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's not good at all. So, okay. So we've identified... This one issue, because I've got it in um, all caps here, cultural shifts, right? You're saying, you're saying cultural shifts, uh, which way it swings, which way the, the pendulum of mass death is going to swing depends on cultural shifts. I mean, it's worthwhile, worthwhile to remember that we always live in a world of mass death. The death rate, as I like to point out on Twitter every couple of years, is still holding at 100%. <laughs> so... Um, and uh, and it and it it always will, right? Like everything, literally everything dies. Uh, and even if you found a way to upload yourself into orbit, you know, probably the sun's gonna destroy those satellites in the next two hundred fifty million years anyway. <laughs> Which is nothing. It's nothing in geological time. So um, so we might as well, to some degree or another hedge our bets, and work with the lifespans we have. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, my, my spoiler warning for transhumanists is always, you're going to die. Um, Don't tell them. They raised an AI that, that, you know, thinks... You saw that the, they raised an AI that computed that the meaning of life is immortality. <laughs> there are so many words that need to be carefully defined there. <laughs> Like, their gods are speaking to them. <laughs> I, I just think um, people really love plugging their assumptions into computers and then screaming that they found them. And congratulations, you will find your assumptions if you plug them into your computer. Very, very good. <laughs> now, you're not the only thing plugging assumptions into the giant computers we're dealing with now, the, the networks we're dealing with now. I mean, one of the things that kind of cracks me up about conspiracy theories is uh 
and things like that, or conspiracy theories or even governance plans, right? Because governance plans are conspiracy theories out in the open, um, is like trying to figure out which ones matter. I mean, humans have an interesting bias, whether it, whether they're working for an intelligence community or they're falling down a Wikipedia hole about secret shit or something like that, of believing that secret is both somehow more true and more important. And that's an interesting assumption that, that we should examine because I think, I think one of the things I see when you say something is secret, I think, ah, something is unvetted, something is unexamined, something has not been through something as rigorous as the scientific process. So if we're going to talk about like what conspiracies drive things and that sort of things, there's, you know, there's N plus one conspiracies out there. Like my daughter and I conspire all the time, right? Which conspiracies matter? is a really interesting question. Because if there's, a, if there's, say, an American conspiracy to do a bunch of stuff in the Middle East, uh, the degree to which that conspiracy has been failing since 2011 is pretty epic. So that's probably not a conspiracy that matters. It's not a conspiracy that gets to do what it wants in the world. Even if there's like a room somewhere in the Pentagon where they're trying to like do all sorts of nefarious things, they have been proving for the last five years that they can't do shit predictably. Uh, so humans love to conspire. I mean, God knows we've been conspiring on the school grounds since second grade, right? <laughs> we all conspire. What actually makes something happen in the world? Like, I, nobody's in, I, I, I say a lot, like nobody's currently in charge of the world. I don't know if anyone ever was, but they sure shit aren't now. Like nobody is driving the train. And that could be comforting and disturbing. And it should be both. Like, I think the fundamental um, idea behind conspiracy theories is that they're very comforting because it implies somebody's in charge. Uh, and I'm anti-conspiracy theory in that I think no one's in charge and we're actually going to have to take responsibility for our culture and our planet and our ecosystem itself. Um, there are people who are pulling like the shit Exxon pulled where they learned about this stuff and then just thought in very short terms. If you want to understand why people do that sort of thing, and especially Exxon, the book I recommend strongly is Robert Jackal's Moral Mazes. And one of the things that comes up in Moral Mazes and why I think it's incredibly relevant here is that so much of it isn't really about like, we're going to build bubble cities and let the rest of the wor world fade into a toxic mess, mwahahaha. It's more like, I don't want to get caught with this problem on my watch. Let it be the next middle manager's problem. It's, it's very short-term thinking inside of a system. The biggest problem with corporations, to my mind, is it, okay, accumulation of capital, Piketty style, Piketty style, is bad, but the biggest problems in corporations is they don't encourage the people who are in them to invest in any kind of long-term idea of success. Because anyone who's doing that isn't going to show the quarterly numbers to keep their jobs that the middle managers they're competing with elsewhere are. It just leads to this quarter-by-quarter -quarter thinking, which is the worst way to address a thousand years of apocalypse. <laughs> I'm going to quote that one. Yes. Um, um, so, I mean, we have to act quarter by quarter. We have to act day by day. That's always going to be true. You can only do something in this minute. But if all we're thinking about is how to get through this week, 
this week is all we will know how to get through. Hell yeah. Uh, and so I think there's a real value in saying, let's start talking about long-term thinking. We're always stuck with short-term acting. Long-term planning, long-term dreaming. I actually think probably the best thing we could do right now is get together as human beings across the world and start having dreams of what we want the planet to be like in a few hundred years. And, you know, I walked around for a little while. I had an experiment for a little while. Where I asked people, what should, what should the world look like in a hundred years? And um, the responses to that question were amazing. Like some people burst into tears. I wasn't like, no, 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 not what do you think it'll look like? What should it look like? What is a good world? Not what's achievable, but what should the world be in a hundred years? And that question is so disturbing right now because that's not how, that's not the kind of thinking we're rewarded for doing. But it is the kind of thinking that puts culture over time in a position to handle a global ecology. And it is the kind of thinking that gets us to work together on things. Whether it was going to the moon or all of us getting to a Christian heaven, that idea of a shared future that is better than the present has always been what spurred on mass human projects. You just don't get a planet. We don't get to terraform without hope and without telling ourselves stories about how the world could be better. And I do think like every time somebody sorts their trash, it's such a small gesture, but it's a, it's a nod towards telling yourself a story about how the world's gonna be better. You know, there's a quote which has been bastardized out of French um, which is, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm going to bastardize it further because I don't have it in front of me right now. But it's the author of The Little Prince uh, saying, if, if you want to build a ship, don't put somebody to chopping wood and constructing this and so on and so forth. Make them fall in love with the sea. If you want a future, get people to fall in love with the future. Um, how much attention have you paid to the solar punk guys? The which? Solar punk? The solar punk. Solar punk. Oh, um, not a huge amount. Uh, I should probably pay more attention. That is my kind of thing. Um, a lot of... I mean, they're, they're trying. <laughs> a lot of one of the things I'd like to see is I'd like to see people get, like, enchanted with the idea of slow travel again. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, we, we could save a lot of energy. Humans like to move around, and I think that's fine, but we can save a lot of energy by traveling slow. And we can, because we now have internet, so we can, we can actually do all of our stuff while we're moving at you know bicycle pace across, across vast amounts of land. I mean, one of the things that's really nice and analogous between the US and Australia is it takes forever to get anywhere <laughs> in both of those places. And you do get a sense that if you can travel slowly through much empty space, there's actually a huge amount you can get done uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the kind of like shapes of things that are often work now as well, or participation in culture. Like you don't have to kind of drop off the planet to slowly move from one place to another. It would be nice if like slow travel, like slow food and all these other things became an idea that we could wrap our heads around a little bit more. Um, yeah, and, uh, and understanding where fast and slow shipping meet our needs. I mean, we're doing that a little bit more just from shipping companies trying to save money, and that's great. I like that the incentives point in that direction. 
but, uh, but understanding that certain parts of our lives should go slowly uh, in the future and that that's okay. We shouldn't be desperately afraid of certain things taking time. Um, that, would be, that would do a huge amount to reduce our energy footprint. Um, learning to eat more wisely, I think, uh, you know, I've been a vegetarian for uh, 22 years as of next year. I'll, I'll be 22 years as a vegetarian pretty soon here. And uh, that was an ecological decision from the beginning. Uh, that was back when I was first doing the marine science and I was looking at the fishing practices. The first thing I ever gave up for moral reasons was, was fish. Uh, and it wasn't because I was worried about the fish being hurt. I was also dissecting them at the time in front of classrooms. <laughs> I still love to dissect me a fish. I just don't eat it anymore. <laughs> um, I have eaten lab dissections. <laughs> um, <laughs> matter of fact, I ate my very first lab dissection, which was, an, it was, which was, which was a squid. We had a deep fryer. We dissected it, and then we made calamari. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm not squeamish about this stuff, but really, uh, the vast majority of people should not be eating very much um, meat very much of the time. If it became something people did for really special occasions, that would be awesome. We could keep all of the cultural value of it and lose the downsides, the health and personal health and planetary health downsides. So it's. And there's a lot more people that are starting to think like that. That was a very lonely position to be in, in you know, 1994. But now, if I say that, if I say that, I'm just like one of those people who thinks that, right? Like as opposed to that one strange girl with some weird ideas. So it's definitely moving um, in a much better direction. And when somebody says to me, "I don't want to be a vegetarian," I'll just want to eat less meat. I'm like, that's fantastic. If everybody ate less meat, we wouldn't really need a whole bunch of vegetarians. We just need people to eat very little meat, travel slowly. Just even in eating very little meat and travel slowly, we get a lot there. And then we just start looking at living in a deliberate way. I mean, poets have been telling us to live deliberately in one form or another for thousands of years for all sorts of reasons, personal reasons, global reasons, ecological reasons, community reasons that deliberate life. And to be honest, there's a lot of us out there. There's over 7 billion people, but we live more deliberately than we ever have in history. It's, it's going the right direction. If you imagine, imagine taking the way people lived in the Neo-Syrian empire and scaling, scaling it up to now. If you think we use a lot of energy, oh my God. <laughs> Try, imagine trying to get all of your energy from burning firewood. The planet would be over. <laughs> it is very slow and very difficult to look at the whole picture, but things are things get worse on scale, but they're also getting better individually. When you look at how wasteful urban life is, when you think about how wasteful that life would be outside of that context, it's amazing how efficient it is. So we just need more of that and less of the other thing. So sort of techno nomads is that what you're pitching i mean probably some i think i think i think there will be a place for techno nomads especially when it comes to kind of um cultural transmission you know there's there's so much we can get from from talking on the internet there's a certain thing that happens when somebody shows up from another place and says this is how we do it where i'm from um 
Most people don't want to be nomads, and that's fine. You know, even during this great northerly migration that is probably organism-related on the human level, most people want to stay home because people like home. Uh, and, uh, and that's fine. Most people should do what they want to do. They should, we should just find a way to make that fit on the little island we have. Um, and if you think we're going to abandon this for another planet because we've ruined this planet, you are way off base about what it's going to take. If we can terraform another planet, this planet's going to be a piece of piss to fix. Like, by the time we have the technology to fix Venus or Mars, <laughs> we can totally manage to turn this place into paradise. <laughs> up to uh um so we're nearly hit an hour so i just wanted to ask one sort of final question for you to like broadly answer yeah sure so just to rewind slightly so we're talking about like the northern migration we're talking about bangladesh right mm -hmm. right now we're seeing europe throw up all these walls and now i think denmark are like getting crazy with their laws Wait, I'm sorry, Europe do what? I didn't hear, you. I didn't hear that part. The, the walls, the walls between countries, the borders, the fortress mentality. Um, obviously, that's going to be a factor in the, you know, in the years to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And Europe's had a history of doing that sort of thing. Europe's got a really broken culture around that, and it has for a thousand years. Um, yeah, Europe has been, uh, Europe's main specialization is killing itself. <laughs> That's a pull quote. That's another pull quote. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> very few places are as good at killing off their own as Europe is. Um, and it's kind of amazing to me how anti-immigration they've managed to keep themselves while their fertility is failing like like get a blackboard do the math people like you need not only do you need the people who are trying to immigrate into europe you need to convince them to stay because right now they want to just go there for a little while and then go home you need to talk them into staying <laughs> um and europe's also had like weird notions of purity for a long time which are weird notions of purity that will end them. You know, I'm, I'm, I spent a lot of time in Europe, and um, I, I will say that I'm actually hoping to myself emigrate to Europe at some point, but I have, done, I have made that decision with, the, uh, with, with a little asterisk on the end, that if um, the Gulf Stream shuts down, I'm getting the hell out. <laughs> so that's, that's basically the, the, the question I wanted to end on is, what your personal take, given what your plans are, what your survival strategies are, mm -hmm. bearing in mind how you see it. So there's, there's, there's my personal survival strategies and there's my sense of community or larger world survival strategies. My personal survival strategies uh, largely involve the fact that I cannot, come hell or high water, get health insurance in the U.S., <laughs> Um, and so I'm, I'm quite tempted to go anywhere else as a result of the fact that I'm literally in the most expensive place to be uninsured. Like when I travel and I just pay out of pocket for doctors, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Can we get a mammogram for my butt too? Right? Like it's so much cheaper everywhere else in the world than it is here. It's just, they just kill you here. 
Um, so one of my personal strategies is to move anywhere where I can see doctors. Um, on a global strategy, the other reason I kind of want to move to Europe right now is because uh, America is a lot of broken, but Europe in some ways is even more broken. Um, and we do need to deal with, we have a really bad demagogue problem right now. Trump is the most recent version of that, but we have a lot of demagogue problem in the US. And people want to say, it's, I'm one of the people that quibbles with people calling it fascism. I want to call it what it is, demagoguery, because the strategies for dealing with fascists versus demagogues are very different. And if we call it what it is, we arrive at better strategies for dealing with it. I'm a writer. I like precision in language. Um, right now, America is in the grip of a hugely destructive cycle of one demagogue after another. Um, and that's something that the whole world needs to deal with. Also, I think the idea that one country gets to deal with its own issues is charmingly 19th century. Um, we all have to deal with each other's issues. But in some ways, I think uh, Europe is worse. Europe may not be worse by the numbers, but Europe is worse in the idea of Europe Europe kind of tries to act like it's, own, it's on its own little planet. The moon of Europe, you know, kind of going around the earth, but not necessarily in it. Um, and as long as Europe believes that, the European institutions are going to do a lot to block progress. So I do think it's a good place to go and try and work on these issues as well. And it's a lot closer to the world than, frankly, either California or Australia is in some ways, too. <laughs> what's your um country of choice well for personal reasons i uh, i spend a lot of time in luxembourg oh interesting <laughs> which is a country by the way <laughs> yeah it's a very small country again it is a if if your country is slightly bigger than my hometown luxembourg is the size of maybe a neighborhood <laughs> right 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 but I like it there, so I spent a lot of time there. Um, but yeah, I do think Europe and America are two places that need to deal with themselves culturally. And the planet somewhat depends on us learning to do that. And in America, I think a lot of that is learning to deal with our vulnerability to, to demagoguery. You guys have a bit of it too. <laughs> Dude, totally. Yeah, like, Jesus. Australia's just as fuck. We just have the smooth corporate overlord now. They threw out the, um, the monk, the mad monk. Yeah, no, we're screwed. I mean, you saw, they're going to dredge the barrier reef tomorrow or something. Like, What was that? They're going to dredge the barrier reef tomorrow, basically. Oh, that sounds like an excellent idea. I'm shaking my head. I should say that for people who can't see me. <laughs> Why the hell would you dredge the Barrier Reef? For a coal export, obviously. That's two bad ideas joined together. <laughs> so you can export coal. Yeah, we're on, on an express train to hell. That's amazing. You know that coal is basically, you know, you know my country, uh, to quote Aaron Sorkin, the Saudi Arabia of coal. There's like, we will never let... We have total control over coal prices because we have so much fucking coal here. There's just, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I guess your coal exports would be so small we wouldn't care. 
but God, you could just don't destroy the Great Barrier Reef. That's a bad idea. I actually really, so, so just kind of, at least for my purposes, to bring this full circle, I have a, I have a dream of visiting Western Australia um, where both the oldest uh, zircons have been found that helped date the world to 4.5 billion years, and more recently, the oldest stromatolites that date that time uh, when single-celled life was, was changing the atmosphere on Earth at 3.7 billion years have now been found not too far from the zircons in Western Australia. And I have a dream of going over there and going out and seeing the spots where those things were found and then probably dying of some terrible poison animal bite. Yeah. Put it on your pants is like a danger here. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> Seriously. Oh no, seriously, like I've found like spiders like this big, like on my pants. Just just for anyone who's not seeing this, he held his fingers far too wide apart at that moment. <laughs> just way, way more wide apart than anyone should be doing. Especially when they're talking about pants. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. But like my plan is to um retire in like a decade or two and, and raise giant lizards. Like get some Komodo dragons, and then breed them even bigger. That's part of my plan. Right. Uh, but those are also poisonous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. It's going to be good. <laughs> that's another thing that's nice about Europe. No poisonous animals in Europe. Yeah, because he killed them all. Like a long time ago. <laughs> All right, I need to sign off because I have to, I have to go make dinner. That's fine. We've covered everything except for some reason I've written down the word cupcakes, so you have to t end with something about cupcake. It, the word what? Cupcakes. Cupcakes. Yeah, for some reason I wrote it down, so we need to end with your thoughts on cupcakes. Um, I don't really eat a lot of sweets. This <laughs> is, um. I, you know, I think just, I think screw cupcakes, go straight to cakes. I'm a cake girl myself. <laughs> yeah, fuck cupcakes, man. Fuck cupcakes. T totally. Keep Earth weird and fuck cupcakes. Yeah. 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 Words to die by. Half measures avail us nothing. Let's go straight to cake, motherfuckers. <laughs> Okay, so uh, there you have it. That was uh, my conversation with Quinn about keeping Earth weird and fucking fuck cupcakes. Cake all the way. Um, You know who makes a great cake? My nan. My nan makes a great cake. And Shiva can't eat any of it because it's chocolate. So I eat it. And she just stares at me like, where's my cake? Where's my fucking cake? And why don't dogs get to eat cake? Especially when they're chocolate. Um, so, actually, there's going to be a few podcasts coming up soon. Um, surprise, surprise, I'm going to be chatting to Gordon White again about his new book, Starshapes, which is fucking amazing. You know, if you like complete 
rewrites of prehistory that go back roughly 30,000 years-ish. Um, and I'm going to be chatting, assuming everything goes to plan, soon after with the man from Mexico known only as Red Pill Junkie about all things UFOs and ufological phenomena. Which, actually, promo, promo, ties into my ongoing uh, current special edition of the Plutocratic Exit series. Crossing over with UFOs, which part one was in New Dawn, part two is currently being serialized on the website Daily Grail, where I am frequently publishing all sorts of things of this nature. And part three, who knows? Who knows? I go, gotta write it. So far, it's just in my head. Uh, I might just beam it to freaking Alpha Centauri and let them, you know, send their edits back. Yes. So I've been Mikey. This is you listening to me. And I will conclude by saying you can follow me on Twitter at, at Mikey. That's M1K3Y. Uh, you can get this and my newsletter from the Extinction Club a day early by going to my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Mikey. And that's it. Be well, you know, keep not dying. You're doing well so far. And I'll see you next time. Peace.